Revelation chapter 22, verse 18. Brethren, this is the Word of God. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life, and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Thus saith the Scriptures. Brethren, before us is a solemn text. The book of Revelation is overflowing with images of glorious and heavenly worship of our God and of His Christ, as well as of awesome judgments. The Apocalypse, commonly attributed to John, closes with the sober warning that we have just read. Now, God has warned throughout all of Scripture that tampering with His Holy Word will bring severe judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, says, Ye shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall ye diminish aught from it, that ye may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. And there wasn't much of Scripture written at that time. Throughout the history of God's book and God's people, God has commanded men not to tamper with His Word, because it is indeed the Word of God. Deuteronomy 12.32 says, What thing soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Likewise, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, warns, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. That's not my purpose to give an exposition of, of these two verses tonight, but to just give something of the context and then uh, look at the objection that is normally raised from these verses against the doctrine of perseverance. <clears throat> there is a, um, a debate among good men as to whether uh, this warning applies only to the book of Revelation uh, or whether... It is to be applied to the entire Word of God. And of course we know that from the passages we've already read, even if we didn't have this one, we know that God's Word is not to be tampered with. So the the purpose uh, is not to untangle even that argument this evening. If you want to know my conviction on it, I'll tell you later. But uh, what we have before us is in verse 19, the following words. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life. Now there are those that say, Aha, there it is. Christians can lose their salvation. Right there before you. If anybody takes away from the the prophecy of, of God's book, God will take away his salvation. Right there. Take away his part out of the book of life. And it isn't until you begin to study this particular situation that you begin to see how complex this particular uh, 
argument becomes because it, it is uh, tied together with numerous other passages in Scripture regarding certain books that are very difficult to untangle because the Lord doesn't tell us much about them. So, we're going to take up the issue tonight then of these books. There's a, uh, a very interesting use of words in verse 18 and 19. You will see a real consistency where verse 18 says, If any man shall add, anybody adds anything to God's book, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Then in 19 we have, If any man shall take away, then God shall take away. So, uh, we see God's severe judgment brought upon these particular individuals named in this passage. If they add, God will add. If they take away, God will take away. So, if you are following me with that much, what we have to wrestle with is what's being referred to here? What is the book of life? Uh, we see that term in the Scriptures, and we want to understand. And it's not a subject uh, that is filled with a lot of detail. So we want to take uh, some time to consider these three things this evening. First of all, we want to consider the plurality of the books. Plural. Plurality of the books. Secondly, we want to attempt an identity of the books. And thirdly, then the content of these books. <clears throat> to properly understand this uh, challenging subject, two verses of Scripture help unlock at least part of the mystery. There is light in the Scripture on this subject. While it is perhaps not a great deal, it is there nonetheless. And these two verses are vital for our understanding. Let us turn first to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> Daniel chapter 7 verse 10. <coughs> In fact, uh, let's start at verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now what we have set before us is an apocalyptic vision of judgment. We see the great and mighty God of heaven and earth, and a scene of uh, breathtaking judgment. 
And brethren, we're going to see this. We're going to experience this. This is not simply a vision. What we see in the vision is that books, plural, are open. Now, the God of heaven and earth, if it so pleased him, would never need a book and never need to have a book. Uh, And certainly if he wanted to, he could put everything he wanted in one book. (coughs) He can do what he will. But the scriptures do tell us that there are books, plural, set before us. Now because uh, most of the time that we hear of these books being mentioned, they are in uh, apocalyptic visions. There are those who would say, well, these are simply symbols. There are not any real physical books in heaven. And I will leave that for brethren to wrestle through. The Word of God says books were opened, and it's given to us in numerous passages. I have no reason to doubt personally that there are books. If we get there and there aren't, the Lord will have all the information anyway. But I have no reason to doubt uh, the reality of these particular books. Now, turn to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. And we have this. Revelation 20, verse 12. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Now we know that all men, from the small to the great, will stand before God. And that is why I have no reason of doubting the reality of these books. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now there's our book of life being mentioned. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, plural, according to their works. Now, then the first point we want to nail down tonight is that the Word of God speaks clearly in two passages regarding the day of judgment that there will be books, plural, brought forth. If I can say it this way, a divine library. If you've ever been in a a lawyer's office, you know they have those rows and rows and rows of books. All regarding cases of the law. Things that have taken place. How they were handled. Well, set before us here in the judgment of God, that great and awesome day when small and great stand before Him, books are opened. Now, even in the days of the Old Testament, from the testimony of God's Word, uh, there was a belief that God did in fact keep a record of all the things that men did. And they believed that there were several books. And uh, Daniel, of course, no doubt is the thing that inspired much of this thinking. But there are other passages that would point to this as well. Now, we will make an attempt to point out the possible identity of some of these books. I would never be dogmatic on on an issue like this, or I should say, uh, maybe I'm not prepared to be dogmatic on an issue like this. Maybe in another day I will be, but... uh, 
Uh, having looked at this uh, on and off over the years, I still find myself simply bowing before the Lord and saying, You've given us this amount of information. Lord, help us handle it properly. There certainly seems to be, from other books that we're going to look at in just a few moments, the possibility of at least four books. The possibility. There would be the book of the living. The book of the living. We'll talk about why we would call it that in just a moment. Secondly, the book of deeds. Or maybe the book of works. Thirdly, the book of life. And then the Lamb's book of life. Now, I can tell you that before we go into the, the Scriptures that will point to these things, there is virtually no agreement among commentators uh, as to how we should view these books. I, I will tell you that most of them tend to conflate or, or lump all of these ideas together in simply one book, the Book of Life. I'm not convinced of that position. I'm just not. And uh, the more I read the Scriptures and the more I study them, the more I'm convinced that when the Bible says books, it means books, and that there are differing books. Now, if they have the title that uh, I've set before you tonight or not, I won't argue other than to say that they're referred to this way. So this basically comes... from the, uh, if I can say it this way, I, uh, my inspiration, uh, not infallible, but my inspiration for these titles simply comes from the, the Word of God itself. So then let's, con- let's consider the content of the books and why we have identified them this particular way. Exodus chapter 32. Turn to Exodus 32. This is actually an extremely rewarding study, and yet one that every time I return to it, the end of the pool seems to get deeper. uh, Exodus 32, verse 32. Moses is speaking. He says, Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, speaking of Israel, and if not, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book, which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Alright. Israel has sinned against the living God. His covenant people have already shown their unfaithfulness. And now, as God uh, enunciates a judgment against them, Moses gloriously intercedes on their behalf. And he comes, apparently, with a great love for the the people of Israel. Not unlike Paul. When Paul said in Romans chapter 9, that uh, I would, that that I could be cursed in their place, the implication of what he's saying. 
And it's the same idea that Moses is raising up here. Perhaps that was even uh, something that was hanging in Paul's mind when he spoke in Romans chapter 9, verse 3. But in Exodus, Moses intercedes for Israel. And he says, If you will not forgive their sins, blot me out. And blot me out of what? The book you have written. The Lord said then, No, I'm not going to honor your wish. I will blot out the ones who have sinned against me. Now this is important. Uh, Once again, there are those who think that uh, all of this is simply uh, Moses speaking of hyperbole. All he's saying here is, well, you know, if you're not going to forgive them, we'll just kill me. And uh, that's certainly possible. In that very plea, we see a glorious type of the Lord Jesus Christ interceding for his people. Yet on the other hand, we see yet another wonderful lesson from God's word. In that a man, no matter how great he is, a man as great as Moses cannot stand in the place of others and bear their sins. That was left for the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only He could stand in the place of His people. So Moses intercedes on behalf of a sinful people, and God says, no, but I'm going to require my judgment upon those who have sinned against me. I will blot them out of my book. Now, the names then, obviously, can be blotted out. Moses is aware that God has written a book. Whatever reason, we do not know, but he seems clearly aware that there is some heavenly record Moses knows that men may be blotted out of that heavenly record and pleads that he himself be blotted out if God doesn't forgive the sin of Israel. Something else. Moses knows that he's in that book. Blot me out! And Moses knows that the book's already been written. Lord, you have written this book. I'm in it. If you won't forgive them, erase me. Something very important to notice here, though. The sinful and the righteous both appear in this book. And the sinful may be removed. Everybody see that? Pretty plain. God says, no, the one that has sinned against me, that's the one I'm going to blot out. The ones to be blotted out in this context are sinful, disobedient Israelites. Covenant breakers. God Himself acknowledges the book, says that He will blot the sinful out of it. Apparently, only the righteous will remain in this book. And at least, as I read and understand the Scriptures, this doesn't appear to be a metaphor. There are many that think that it is. I'm not convinced of that. I think Moses was pleading and pleading regarding something that he knew. Perhaps those who took a different position 
would have a stronger case if these books were not mentioned in many other places in the Scripture. But the fact that they are continually referred to at least convinces me. So here's a book that people can be written in and erased from. Psalm chapter 69, verse 28. Psalm chapter 69, verse 28. The psalmist writes, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. Let them be blotted out of the book of of the living. Once again, those being referred to are the wicked and the righteous are to remain. The psalmist pleads along the same lines that Moses does. <clears throat> Look very carefully here in the context. <coughs> you see in verse 24. Pour out thine indignation upon them. Let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let none come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. <clears throat> There's certainly application here in David's life. No doubt, at the same time, it points again to the Lord Jesus Christ. But either way, we have a book where the wicked can be removed. David certainly seems to believe that the wicked can be blotted out of God's book. He's aware of that book in which all the names of the living appear. And he calls upon the Lord to blot his enemies out of that book. So the names of the wicked can be removed. This is something that David himself uh, is speaking and hoping for. And the names of the righteous and the wicked were together then at some time in that particular book. Only the righteous will remain. Well, brethren, we have two, I think, fairly clear passages regarding a book in which the righteous and the wicked both appear at one time, and yet the wicked can and will be removed. And it's specifically referred to here in the Psalms as the book of the living. <clears throat> now there are those that would argue that, uh, well, if it's the book of the living, it's why aren't you calling it the book of life? Because a living and life are pretty much the same thing, are they not? Well, it depends on how you're defining that. It would certainly appear that this is a book regarding all those who exist and that God brings judgment upon the wicked and removes them. And yet ultimately it points to the righteous going on, not only in life physically, but finally to eternal life. 
But it wouldn't do us much good to spend a lot of time speculating beyond what has been set before us here. Certainly there is a book where the righteous and the wicked have appeared together and the wicked can be removed. Now, if you look at Psalm chapter 139, Psalm 139, verse 16, again David writes, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Now this appears to be a book that clearly points to predestination. Here God knows David, knows him plainly, clearly, all the way down to the details of his anatomy. It was written in his book. Speaking of God's infinite knowledge of him, David speaks of this intimate knowledge written by God beforehand. David is aware that God has a book, so we have Moses. And David, if he wrote Psalm 69, which I would... I believe that he did, though that is contested by some. But 139 certainly can't be argued. That's that's plainly David speaking. God is the author of this book. These men, living hundreds of years apart, are speaking the same kind of language. God has a record. And it's an intimately detailed record. It is a record of those who exist. And it is, it is a record of intimate knowledge. God knows his creation. And here it would point, as I understand, to his love for those whom he hath chosen. More on why I would say that as we go a little further. So, this may all point to a book that records this information. Intimate and one that uh, the Lord's people are aware of. That brings us to Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time, thy people shall be delivered. Everyone that was found written in the book. Now, who will be delivered in this great time of trouble? Only those written in this particular book. Now, that has to be something different from the book that we were reading about earlier. Because there can't be any wicked ones in this one. There can't be any wicked ones to remove. And the wicked are still alive at this particular time. So it would appear. But who is delivered? Those found written in the book. Now there, we run into some issues regarding your particular views of the end times, which I will not take on this evening in this study. Simply to say 
there is a great deliverance of those written in the book. This is not speaking of an earthly tribulation and is speaking of the day of judgment and of course it would re- refer to the books uh, in whom the, uh, wherein the righteous are written uh, in which the, the wicked have never been. So either way, Luke chapter 10 verse 20 the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to His disciples. They came back rejoicing at the power that He had granted them as they went out taking the glories of the gospel of the kingdom. But He tells them, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now this clearly is speaking to the issue of eternal life. And when we come to the New Testament, it would appear that the only references to the book or books, uh, the references are, are either to the book of life or the books out of which men are judged. This may be an entirely different book from the one to which Moses and David referred. Because that book had the righteous and the wicked at the same time in it. Perhaps it was the book of the Old Covenant living. And the, those who were unfaithful to that covenant were removed. Perhaps it's simply judgment discerning between the, the righteous and the wicked. Either way. There's a clear difference in that book and the one that we encounter in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus tells them to rejoice that their names are written in heaven. We hear in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul writes, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. My fellow laborers are with me in the book of life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, speaking of the church. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Now, who's being written here? The the general assembly of the firstborn. Who's that? The church. And who is being referred to here? Ultimately, God's elect. God's elect. Now, Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. Here at the, the, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ addresses whom? Seven churches. These are they which profess to be the Lord's people. And yet we know, reading those books carefully, that there are those among them who are not truly the Lord's children. Now in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5, it says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, many ancient cities used to keep a register of their citizens. And when a person died, his name was erased, or it was marked out. 
of the register or, or book or scroll. According to uh, certain authorities, Athens and other Greek cities had the custom of erasing from the rolls the names of citizens executed by the state. So we see taking place in history something that is clearly set forth uh, with he- uh, heavenly revelation. Criminals would be the first erased from the book and then executed. That seems to be the very pattern that the Lord seems to be uh, setting before us. Going all the way back to Moses, in the book of the living, the wicked could be erased from that book. No mention of that here. As a matter of fact, there are many that try to use this to say, well, see, people can be erased from the book of life, as it's being spoken of here in the New Testament, and yet the very opposite is what's being said. There is great assurance to the Lord's people because what he's saying is that if you're in the book of life, I'm not going to erase you. I'm not blotting out your name. God's people may have great assurance that their names are written in heaven. This is why the Lord Jesus said to the disciples he sent out, It may be wonderful and thrilling to you to be able to work miracles in my name, but there is something far greater than that. It is that you are my child and your name is written in my book. Or at least in the book of life. Revelation chapter 17. The beast that thou sawest was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they behold the beast that was and is not, and yet is. Now, this is important. If you're getting lost in the library here, let's try to put this together. The book that Moses referred to had the righteous and the wicked together at the same time, and the wicked could be taken out of it. The book being spoken about here in Revelation 17 is one that the wicked were never in. Look at it carefully. Look what it says. They that dwell on the earth shall wonder whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This book is a book of the Lord's people. Those that wonder at the beast were never in the book. So we have, at the very least, two books at this point. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, is the verse we read a few moments ago. I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books, plural, were opened, and another book, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, plural, according to their works. So here we have the book of life and the book of works, or the books of deeds. So now we have at least three categories. A book that God has written, that it uh, appears to be the book of the living. In it, the righteous and the wicked appear together, and yet the wicked are removed. Then we have a book in which the wicked were never written. 
called the book of life. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ and the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews and, and of course, John writing in Revelation is pointing to rejoice because your name is in this book. The wicked were never in it and God's people always have been. This is the book of the elect. The book, ultimately, of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wicked were judged out of the other books. They were not found in the book of life, and they were cast into the lake of fire. Look at verse 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. How is it that those in that book were righteous? How were they righteous? Were they better than those who were never written in that book? Better than the only righteousness that saves is an alien righteousness. It is not the righteousness that we have. It is the righteousness purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. When He came in His mercy and kept the law perfectly for us, when He died upon the cross of Calvary bearing all the wrath and fury of God, the law was completely satisfied. And then, on the third day, God raised Him from the dead, receiving His sacrifice for His people. Those in this book of life were those loved before the foundation of the world whom God purposed to save through the glorious righteousness of His Son. They're not written in there because they're righteous in and of themselves. They're not written in that book because they were a little better than the people next door. They are written in this book because God in His mercy and His sovereign grace has chosen to send His Son to save them from their sins. Now there's one possible further book. We find it in two passages. Revelation 13, verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. The book of life of the Lamb. Now, there are those who would say that the book of life of the Lamb and the book of life are identical, and I'm certainly not going to argue with them. Because those written in the book of life uh, rejoice for all eternity. And unquestionably, those written in the Lamb's book of life will rejoice for all eternity. So, I have no reason to make any distinction any further than the fact that at least in two places a book is named the Lamb's book. The Lamb's book. Revelation 21-27 is the last mention. And it says, And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those are the citizens of heaven. Those are the citizens of heaven. 
You will read that chapter carefully, brethren. Those are the only ones who will enter in to the glorious abode of the Lamb. Now again, I, I make no arguments. I'll sit down and talk with anybody about their particular views. I only say that there's a distinction in two verses by a little added description. The book of life and the book of the Lamb may be exactly the same book. Now, before we go back to Revelation 22.19 and close up this evening, it is clear that there are at least three categories of books. Whatever else we may say, whatever else, whatever nuances, whatever details we can find, there's at least the book that the living and the, uh, the, the wicked and the righteous are in and the wicked can be removed. And they are. There is the book of life in which the wicked have never appeared. And there are the books of works or the books of deeds out of which all men will be judged. So even those are plural. Oh, brethren, I urge you to take these things and meditate upon them and pray about them and wrestle through them. But now we want to close with Revelation 22.19 where we began. Let's remember, the Revelation was being written to the seven churches in Asia. But among them were false teachers. Read those seven churches' letters carefully. The head of the church speaks to them and he reproves them for their false teachers. So what we have from outward appearance are collections of people who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They profess to be His people. And now the Lord addresses them not from the perspective of what He knows eternally about His elect. He simply addresses those final congregations and, of course, all of His congregations throughout history with this. Those of you that are professing to be My people... If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city. If the wicked have never truly been entered into the book of life, then how are we to understand that? because we've been plainly shown in the Scriptures that they were never there from the foundation of the world. Well, brethren, those who are in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ make a profession of faith. Their profession of faith is false. But their hope is a heavenly one, is it not? What do they profess? The Lord Jesus Christ. They profess to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They've been baptized. They're taking the Lord's Supper. And what the Lord is saying is that those 
who would manifest what they really are this way will be excluded from life. They will be excluded from life. We have to take into consideration that the regenerate would never mutilate or distort the Word of God. Is that not so? God's children are not going to tamper with the prophecies of God. Having been filled with the Spirit of God, they will not take away from that which was written by the Spirit of God. There will be a consonant love in their heart uh, for Christ, for His Word, and for what He has spoken. When we go to God's divine library, we find that there are books out of which men may be taken, books from which men are excluded, and books that plainly show us that if wicked men, professing to be Christians, tamper with the Word of God, they show themselves to be the unregenerate, excluded from the hope of heaven. So, brethren, we do not have any evidence in that particular passage that God's children can be lost. We have no evidence that the Lord's people can finally fall away. We do have evidence that those who profess to be the Lord's children and do not live according to His Word will ultimately be excluded from the hope of everlasting life. May God have mercy on us as we consider the grace of God and the mercy of our Lord. And may we examine ourselves to see whether we be in faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercies. Lord, as we go through all of these passages and, and know that there are even more, this great subject of everlasting life stands out in all of it. How many books are there altogether? We don't know that. You haven't told us. What's contained in each of them? We only know bits and pieces. But we know this. Those who are in the Lamb's book will surely and certainly be with Him in the city of God for all of eternity. Holy Father, Purge us, cleanse us, make us to know Thee and Thy truth. Fill us with Thy Spirit and help us to abide in Thy glorious truth. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at 
swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.